Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, our guest is the Grammy-winning and often emulated musician Warren Haynes, a truly gifted guitar player, singer-songwriter, record producer, and band leader who's worked with some of the most notable acts of our time, including the Allman Brothers Band, the Dave Matthews Band, Blues Traveler, Garth Brooks, Marcus King, the list goes on. And let's not forget the band that he co-founded back in 1994, always a festival favorite, Government Mule. Oh, and there's his work with members of the Grateful Dead, including touring with Phil Lesh and Friends, and the Dead. Yeah, the man stays busy. He's charismatic, he's original, driven, visionary, and just the right type of rebellious. He's a mentor to many, and it's a great day when you get to connect with him and hear his thoughts on the world. So without further ado, please welcome Warren Haynes. Warren, welcome to Diddy TV. Thanks for joining us. Listen, I didn't even know where to start, man. You have done so many things that I thought I cannot cover all this. So you've had an incredible career, and we're going to touch on a few things, but uh, but I couldn't get to everything. So uh, how did you, you were born in, uh, or raised in Asheville, North Carolina, right? Yeah, born and raised in Asheville. Do you still live there or? No, uh, I live uh, about an hour north of New York City. And I've been in the New York area for over 30 years. But Asheville is still my home. All my family's still there and stuff. Uh, it was a great place to, to grow up. So what was the music scene like in Asheville when you were growing up? I know there's a great scene there now. Was there one then? Not so much. I mean, there was always kind of an underground scene. There were a lot of good musicians. There was a lot of bluegrass, uh, a lot of good electric guitar players um, and singer-songwriters, but there were no venues. There was no really good places to play. Uh, that didn't start changing until about 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, but there was always a nice, healthy underground scene. It just wasn't uh, kind of, uh, it wasn't a place where people would stop on their, their tour. They would go to Charlotte, they would go to Atlanta, but they wouldn't stop in Asheville. So when you were a teenager, did you have to go to Charlotte or Atlanta to see a concert then? And did you? Do yeah, that? I mean, we got some, but we didn't get uh, we didn't get the big ones. But we we got some, and and I saw all the good ones that came through Asheville. I I managed to see uh, for the most part. But yeah, I would I would go to Atlanta, and I would go to Charlotte or Greensboro or somewhere uh, if necessary. Well, almost as important as uh, venues is a record store. Did you have a good one in Asheville back then? Well, yes, we did, which brings me to a, a, an interesting story. My, I have two older brothers, and the younger of my two older brothers eventually started and ran the best record store in the area for about 25 years. He and his wife started a music store. Uh, initially, it was called Selector Records in Hickory, North Carolina. Then they moved to Asheville, changed it to Almost Blue, and it was the, the best store within a few hundred miles for a long time. But 
uh, I guess they retired it about 10 years ago or more. Uh, and now they could probably do great with it. At that time, uh, record stores were not such a hot commodity and he got out at, at a good time. But my brothers were both collectors and uh, my brother Brian especially had thousands and thousands of records just as a collector. So it kind of made sense that he would eventually open a store. Well, you know, it's funny. We just did a piece on Citizen Vinyl. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're they're one of the the new you know vinyl pressing yes plants. Yeah, we have one here in Memphis, uh, Memphis Record Pressing. But Citizen Vinyl is very cool, and you know that's in that's in Asheville. We're really seeing an uptick in vinyl, of course, as you probably well know. Uh, we we have a store here ourselves where we sell vintage instruments and vinyl records, and it's been such a flip from you know, CDs to vinyl. Now we sell almost all vinyl. It's crazy. It's back again. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is crazy because we saw vinyl almost go away and, and now it's back really strong. And, and I think that's great. I mean, all the way around. I like the way vinyl sounds. Uh, I love the way the artwork looks. It's very nostalgic for me, but I think even young people today prefer it, which is cool. Well, and of course, you know, we grew up, you and I are about the same age, and we grew up when you collected vinyl and you had, like you said, these beautiful pieces of art. That was a part of the deal. And you would display them. And you got down to a small tape or a CD, and it wasn't so impressive. So it's kind of fun to see all the artwork come back, too. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading every album cover to cover. There was, there was so much information and with CDs, I don't really do that as much. You know, everything's uh, minimalized and it's just not nearly as fun to, to kind of explore that world. Uh, and it's, uh, for me, it's, it's a good thing that vinyl's back. We, we found over the past 10 years, more and more of our fans drifting toward vinyl anyway, but now there's this huge uh, surge for it. So you started playing guitar when you were basically a teenager, right? I mean, 12, 13 years old, something like that. Yeah. I started, uh, I started singing first when I was seven or eight. Uh, and then my oldest brother got a guitar when I was 11. And I think I played it more than he did. So I, I got a guitar when I was 12. Well, and I know you're a big fan of the Gibsons and I think you play Les Paul, right? In 1958 or something. Is that the correct yeah. I, I have a 1959, a and then I have a signature model that Gibson uh, put out, which is a combination of a 58 and a 59. Yeah, I've been a Gibson guy pretty much my entire life, and and these days I play mostly Les Paul, but 335s and Firebirds, and uh, I just find it's it's more suited for my voice, you know. I was going to ask you what specifically about the Gibson sound that really drew it to you and then kept you sort of in that bucket in that camp. Well, I always gravitated toward those kind of sounds. Uh, even though I never had a Les Paul as a kid, I always coveted that sound. I had SGs and I had an ES-150 and stuff like that. Um, but I think going all the way back to B.B. King, uh, when someone plays and sings, it's really important that their personality is, is reflected in both. Like when I hear B.B. King, his voice and his guitar sound like the same thing. And so I was always kind of looking for that uh, with, with my tone. 
and I think it's easier for me to uh, to make that connection with a Gibson. You know, I, I played a Strat for years, and I, and I love the way Fenders sound. I love the way tons of different guitars sound. But just for me personally, the Gibson thing works. That's an interesting um, premise because when you when I think about BB King, I do think about him almost singing through the guitar, Absolutely. and and how much that his voice sounded like his instrument. I hadn't really thought about it like that. It's a really interesting way to think about it. Yeah, and, and Bonnie Raitt is a great example, too. And she mostly plays a Fender, which sounds more like her voice. Um, but it, that was always a, a, important to me is for the, the two things to kind of uh, coexist, you know. So did you have a band in high school? I had bands going back <laughs> to 12 years old. Uh, we were terrible, but... Uh, <laughs> I think it's important too for young musicians to start playing in a band as soon as possible. But yeah, we, from the very beginning, you know, I had all these bands that never played a gig and then somewhere around 14, we started playing uh, at first for free and then eventually for whatever money anybody would give us. But yeah, uh, I think once I started playing in front of an audience, I was hooked and, and, that was kind of part of the deal for me at that point. So did you really have to leave Asheville to sort of get out there and pursue your musical career? And where did you go? At the time, yeah. At the time, all the older musicians uh, would say, if you're going to make it in the music business, you're going to have to get out of town. And so uh, my, my, I moved to Nashville because it was the closest of the music cities. Sure. I didn't want to go to New York or LA at the time. And there was no real scene in Atlanta. This is like early eighties. Um, so Nashville was the logical choice uh, for me. And then ironically, these days, Asheville is a good choice, but at the time, not so much. Well, Nashville being maybe the smaller of the big music cities at the time, what was the scene like in Nashville when you got there? Because I would think it would be a little more, a little less crazy than it is now. It was a little less crazy, yeah. Uh, a little less open-minded as well, meaning it, it was much more controlled by country music than it is now. Now there's so many people moving from L.A. and, and New York and, and all over and there's so many different types of music uh, being played and recorded there. Uh, when I was there, rock music and blues music and jazz were a much smaller piece of the pie than they are now. So when you moved there, were you already writing music or just playing? Yeah, I, I started writing. Uh, I was writing poetry when I was a kid. And when I picked up guitar, that just changed to lyrics. Uh, very bad lyrics, I'm sure, in the in the early days. But I've been writing songs uh, as long as I've been playing guitar. So I read that as early as 20 years old, you were in uh, David Allen Coe's band. And uh, that is correct. How did you meet him? Um, his bass player, who was uh, a guy named Mickey Hayes, was uh, also a North Carolinian had heard me play in, in a club in Asheville and took my phone number and said that they might be looking for a guitar player. And then I think three months or more went by before I heard from anybody. And then I got a call saying, can you be in Baton Rouge tomorrow? Uh, and I was like, 
Yeah, I guess I can. I, I didn't. I didn't know much about him or his music uh, at that time, but I knew that it was a step up for me, uh, and so I, I got on an air, airplane and flew to Louisiana. I was curious when when you're a young person. You obviously, at some point, you go from playing bars to bigger venues and then even bigger venues along the way. So what was it like to play with him? And did you learn something at that age about touring and performing, just being with a veteran uh, musician? Well, it was my first time uh, touring on a higher level. And uh, not too long after that, making records, uh, which, you know, at that point, I had only been in a recording studio one time in my life, and it was for a few hours, and it was a very negative experience. And then, so after joining Cozman, a few months later, they were making a record, and uh, I went into the studio with him to be part of that, and was surrounded by all these uh, veteran A-team uh, session musicians who had all made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records. And so that was a learning experience, obviously. And and then also uh, playing a different type of music than i had ever played. Anytime you're forced into something like that, it forces you to learn. Uh, and again, I, everybody I was associated with was much more adept at it than I was. Uh, but he brought me in out of his own mouth, his words were, he wanted to add a blues rock guitar player uh, to his band to to add an edge to his music. And so that that was my role was to kind of turn it more toward a rock band. And uh, meanwhile, I had to uh, do a crash course in in country music, which I, you know, I had I already loved George Jones and Merle Haggard and Bill Monroe and Hank Williams and Ralph Stanley and stuff like that. But outside of that, I didn't know a lot about trendy uh, country music. And so I, I, had, I had a lot to learn. So were you writing any music for these bands that you were in at this point? I know later on you got into producing your own records and we'll get to that, but were you writing music for these bands as well or mainly just playing? Well, I had been in a band called Ricochet, which was not uh, to be confused with uh, a country rock band that came later called Ricochet that was actually making records. Our band never did uh, get that far. We were pursuing a record deal, which never happened. But we played mostly original material, and it was, uh, it was quite a good band, and, and we were writing a lot of cool material, and uh, I think kind of garnered what would be the, the biggest following in the area for, for quite some time. Uh, but we never did make it to the recording stages. Uh, but I was writing a lot at that time, mostly rock music, but I, I was also in this singer songwriter phase where I was writing a lot of stuff uh, outside of that. And then when I joined O's band and moved to Nashville, I, I started pursuing the, the singer-songwriter thing much more heavily and started co-writing with other writers and and discovering a lot of writers that I had never uh, known much about prior. So it was, a, it was a, a good time to kind of soak up that environment. 
So were your parents supportive of you going off and doing a, having a music career? My dad had a beautiful singing voice and uh, he never pursued music, but I think he could see in me that I was very passionate about it. So he was very supportive. My parents were divorced and I was raised by my dad. Uh, and so when it came time to get me a better guitar, he would trade my old one in and upgrade and the same thing with getting me a better amplifier. And when it came time to uh, make the decision to go on the road or go to college, I know it broke his heart, but he let me go with my heart and go on the road and not go to college. And uh, he was just very supportive because he knew how important it was to me. It must have been very cool for him to see you take off like you did, which is uh, great because we're going to get to the album that you just are putting out, Heavy Load Blues, which is your first blues album as Government Mule. And we're going to get to talking about that here in just a few. Um, but so how did you meet Dickie Betts? Because I know that that led to you being in the Allman Brothers Band. So how did you meet Dickie? I met Dickie Betts and Greg Allman uh, the same night. Um, I was in Nashville with David Allen Coe. Uh, we were making a record. And truthfully, he brought them by our, our studio to impress me. He, he was, uh, I was new in his band and the Allman brothers were in Nashville making a record at that time as well. And he knew they were recording and, uh, he knew I would be impressed by it if they came by the studio because I was a big fan. I was a huge Allman brothers fan and, and had not, uh, made any bones about it. And so he sent a limo over to their studio to bring them to the studio. And it was, Dickie and Greg and Guy Clark and uh, Don Johnson, the actor. And they all came by the studio and hung out. And Dickie kind of uh, took a liking to me because I was this young, I don't know if I was still 20 or had turned 21, but I was this young kid that was not only a, a big fan of what they did, but of the, all the stuff that influenced them. He and I talked about jazz and about blues and, you know, we played together and uh, it, it took a while before we reconnected, but that was our, our initial connection. So at that point in time, when you first met them, were they together? Because I know they took a break and then they got back together, but were they together when you first met them? Yeah, they were, I think this was um, before they broke up or mm -hmm. I'm, positive of that. Um, and then they, they broke up for nine years, I think, after that. Um, and so they were making a, a record uh, down the street and all of a sudden they come in at the end of our session and Greg's sitting down playing the piano and, and uh, I remember him playing uh, the song Queen of Hearts, which is a, a beautiful song that I've I've always loved, and we had uh, we had some one-on-one -on -one conversations. But again, I was a kid, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, I would jam again with with Greg maybe six months or a year later, and the same with Dickie maybe a year or two later. 
but it wasn't till many years after that that uh, we wound up having a serious relationship. And many years down the road, Dickie Betts calls you and says, he has a band, Dickie Betts Band, and you were asked to do backup vocals or play guitar? Yeah, I, that's an odd story because he, he was in Nashville um, making a record that never came out. And I had gotten called to sing backup uh, on this record. There was a girl named Kim Morrison who was one of the people in charge of hiring background singers uh, for recording sessions. And she used me on a, a, a lot of, uh, of her sessions and we were good friends. And she called me one day and said, uh, do you want to sing on the Dickie Betts record? And I said, absolutely. And so when, when the session happened, I walked in and I guess Dickie didn't know that they had called me and we hadn't seen each other in quite a while anyway. And he was like, Hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, Oh, I got called to sing background on your record. And he was kind of laughing. He said, you got a guitar? I said, no. And, and he was like, uh, Oh, well, good. I didn't want you to play anyway. He was just kind of joking around. And, but it kind of planted this seed because uh, some of the members in his band had been saying that they wanted to add me to the band. Uh, and so a few weeks later, uh, he called me and said, Hey man, I, I scrapped that record. Uh, it just wasn't, it was too, too like pop country and like the, the songs or the way it was being produced. He said, well, you say we start a band and, and write some rock songs and go make a rock and roll record. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. I, I, I was blown away. So did y'all then put out an album as, as Dickie Betts band or? We, we recorded his record, uh, Pattern Disruptive, uh, for Epic Records. And we wrote a lot of songs together for it. And uh, we toured behind that record for about a year. Uh, and then I had been receiving a lot of uh, interest as a solo artist and with some of the different record companies. And so it, my plan was, okay, now I'll go uh, uh, concentrate on making a solo record. And then they called me and said, uh, we're putting the Allman Brothers back together and we'd like for you to join. Well, and uh, once again, I was flabbergasted. Was that sort of a, a, a fun pinch me moment when you think, hey, I've always loved the Allman Brothers. Now I'll get to play with them. And perform yeah and you know growing up you could never imagine something like that uh being even a, a possibility and then uh the whole time i was in dickie's band which was for i think two and a half years um whenever they brought up an almond brothers reunion it was always no that's never going to happen so I just kind of took them at their word. And so when they called me and said we're reforming, I was as shocked as anybody else. What was the best part of that experience of, of being able to play with them, someone you've looked up to your whole life? Well, they were one of my absolute all-time favorite bands. And I think aside from the obvious of just being able to join a band that, that you love, uh, the fact that they brought me in as a songwriter because I had already written songs with Dickie and some, uh, uh, I had written the, this title track of Greg's latest solo record at that point. And so they brought me in as a songwriter and also let me sing right from the beginning, which 
was something they didn't have to do. Most bands in their position probably wouldn't have done that. And they also, with myself and with Alan Woody, the bass player, and, and with Johnny Neal, who was playing keyboards at the time, they incorporated us on a musical level as equals. You know, they it wasn't like a lot of bands where the new guys are uh, in the back and the, and the original members are in the front and it's you're just like a backup band. The Allman Brothers never looked at itself that way. It was always a band that had to be, uh, at least on stage, uh, a band of equals. And, and so they, they gave all of us this latitude to express ourselves and to be part of the creative process. And, and I think that's uh, the most important thing. Well, and you met, is that where you met Alan Woody or did you know him before that? I had met him uh, through Artemis Pyle uh, and he was playing in Artemis Pyle's band and, and I wound up seeing him uh, at this club called the Exit Inn one night and they called me up to jam in the encore, but it was just a late night loose jam. It wasn't a real serious sort of thing. And I remember being impressed with his playing even then, but we we didn't really discover each other's uh, uh, playing till till after that. And when he joined the Alma Brothers, we became instant friends. So I was wondering, did y'all share a, a love of similar kinds of music? Because of course he's the one you started Government Mule with, and you know why? Why did how did that come about? I should say. Yeah, Woody and I had very similar taste in music. We're both uh, fans of all sorts of music. You know, he, he played mandolin and a lot of other string instruments, and he loved bluegrass, but he also loved jazz, and he loved blues and soul music. And so we were kindred spirits in that way. We always would share the same bus with Government Mule, uh, with the Allman Brothers, and so we spent a lot of time listening to all sorts of music uh, on the bus together. And uh, one of the reasons I think that we started Government Mule was because uh, our our uh, connection musically was was really strong right from the very beginning. So why the name Government Mule? That name was given to us by uh, J-Mo, who was one of the original drummers in the Allman Brothers. And... Uh, there are a lot of meanings behind it. Uh, the one we stuck with at the time and, and most of the time was just being like a, a slave to the government, you know, but there were uh, other ones that circulated around here and there that uh, <laughs> we'll talk about at a later date. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you 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 start the band and you're together for a short period of time. And I know that, that Woody and I mean Alan Woody unfortunately passed away pretty early on, in two thousand, two thousand unexpectedly I guess, and um, and then, um, but you still kept the the project together, and the band. We did uh, in the beginning. My uh, inclination was that Government Mule was finished when Woody died, um, and then we came up with this idea if we were going to make a record, was there someone we would want to come in uh, and take his place? And it was too soon for that to happen. So we came up with the idea of all his favorite bass players, each contributing one song. So we went into the studio with 25 bass players and made 
the deep end volume one and the deep end volume two with 25 of the greatest bass players in the world all standing in his spot. And it was a very bittersweet time because we were so distraught uh, from his passing, but every day we would walk into the studio and a different one of his heroes would be standing there. And uh, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience in hindsight, you know, uh, at the time it was the only way we could think of to get through and, and keep government mule alive. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad we did because as much as I felt that we should have called it quits, uh, at that moment, uh, it's gone on, uh, and a, a lot of the continuation has been, in celebration of, of his legacy. And, and I know we're all extremely proud of, of what we've done since then. So it's uh, it was a hard choice, but I'm glad we made that one. And you guys are always known as a unbelievable live band. And did, did that start with, uh, with him and move forward? How did that happen that you just became this incredible live band? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were uh, uh, not a spinoff, but a, a side project that was born out of the Allman Brothers. Uh, the Allman Brothers was touring about half of the year at that time. And so we had the other half to do whatever we wanted to do. And I had made a solo record in 93 and toured behind it. And uh, Woody and I started kicking around the idea of doing a project together. And uh, we were listening on the bus to Cream or Jimi Hendrix or something, some rock trio. And he said, you know, nobody does that anymore. We should bring that back. If we had the right drummer, we could do that. And I thought of Matt Apps, who I had met uh, in Dickie Betts' band. And so we scheduled a, a jam session that exceeded our expectations because he and Woody had never played together before. And it was just a match made in heaven. The two of them together was fantastic. So we initially, we were just going to make a, a low budget record uh, and do a one little tour and then go back to our day jobs. But something happened. It kind of just caught fire on its own. And the next thing you know, it turned into a real band, which kind of caught all of us by surprise. And I, I read that you, you did a stint with the Grateful Dead, which is another live band that's, you know, awesome live. And what was that like? Well, you know, I've always gravitated toward bands that, even though they made good studio records, were much more uh, of a live band. I, that's always kind of been my thing. And the Dickie Betts band was that, that way. And obviously the Allman Brothers was that way. And so Government Mule just kind of followed that tradition, so to speak. Uh, I had gotten a call from Phil Lesh, uh, the bass player from the Grateful Dead, in the late 90s, and he said that he had made a list of musicians that he wanted to work with and that I was one of the people on that list and was I interested in coming to San Francisco and doing some rehearsals and doing a couple of shows and said, absolutely. And so I flew to San Francisco and we rehearsed for two or three days and then we did a couple of shows and it was great. That was the beginning of my relationship with him, which just got better and better. 
and which uh, eventually led to me doing two tours with what they called The Dead, which was the uh, post Jerry Garcia, Grateful Dead. Uh, and I, I love all those guys and play together when we get a chance to, but uh, mostly Phil, he's the one that I play with uh, the most out of that, out of those folks. You know, what strikes me in what you're saying is there was a lot of collaboration going on and, and characters are getting together and one guy in this band, another guy in that band. Do you think there was more collaboration back then than there is now or you think it's still going on? I think it's still going on. Uh, you know, there's, there's this uh, jam band scene, for lack of a better term, that the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead kind of spearheaded. And now it's kind of become a genre. It's kind of become a, 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 a pathway for young musicians if they choose to get started and, and take part in, in that sort of scene then the one thing that all those bands have in common is live performance and improvisation, doing a different set list every night, just playing moment by moment, uh, including their friends on stage. Um, and it's kind of turned into this whole network of bands that share a philosophy. Um, and I think it's a, a really, a really healthy Thing and hopefully is getting getting even more and more so because my only criticism of it used to be that it should include more genres genres like uh, reggae and, and bluegrass and and now it is uh, there are jazz jam bands there are reggae jam bands uh, people like Billy Strings who is people really love that's that's kind of incorporating uh, his world in, into it. You know, I think the sky's the limit. It's kind of bringing back the late 60s, early 70s as far as open-mindedness. And I, I think that's really cool because that's one of the most healthy times rock and roll has ever had. Yeah, we, I talked to Billy Strings um, in the last year, and we were talking about bluegrass in particular in the jam scene because in bluegrass, a lot of people know the same songs because a lot of them are traditional bluegrass and everyone's writing new ones now. But he said it made it very easy to jam with guys backstage at a festival because you would get together and hey, we all learned the same bluegrass songs growing up and then we're just gonna get together and jam. But to your point, it's, it's, it's infiltrating into all different genres now and that really helps people get together. And who knows what comes out of that, right? Yeah, and also uh, people are taking songs from genres other than their own and reinterpreting them. And so somebody will make a rock version of a bluegrass song or a, or a bluegrass version of a jazz song. And, and it's great. I mean, it's, it's a shot in the arm. It's what music needs. Which actually brings me to your latest album that's coming out here very soon, Heavy Load Blues. And I, I know that you almost didn't make it a government mule album. You weren't you were on the fence as to whether it needed to be government mule or um, a solo album. And what, what were you thinking in sort of making that decision? Well, it's been on my mind for probably five or six years. Um, and I had not thought about it as a government mule record uh, until in the past year and a half or so. Uh, and then 
during the whole lockdown quarantine thing, I wrote a few blues songs, which is rare for me because uh, most of the songs that I write, I don't think of them as traditional blues songs, but for some reason I, I had written a handful. Uh, and so it was time for us to think about recording. And uh, our manager, Stephanie, had said, well, what do you guys think about making a blues record? And I said, well, I've been wanting to do that for a long time. Maybe it should be a, a government mule record. Let's see what the band thinks about it. Uh, but if we're going to do that, I've been writing so much music that I don't want to just limit it to that. I want to maybe make two records at the same time. So we, we got everybody on the phone and everybody was, was intrigued with the idea of making a blues record, but also intrigued with the idea of making a, a normal government mule rock record at the same time. So we came up with this plan that if we found a studio that could accommodate both setups, uh, we would set up for a normal government mule record in the big room and for a blues record in the small room which is what we did. And in the, the, the big room at this studio called Power Station, New England, a uh, big room with high ceilings. We brought in all of our normal toys and set up for a normal mule recording. But in an adjoining small room with lower ceilings, we set up a bunch of small amplifiers and a small drum kit and no headphones. We just used a, a vocal monitor like we were in some little small club and we recorded everything live. So what we would do is we would go in early in the day, we would go in the studio in the big room and work till about nine at night. Then we would take a break and then we'd move over to the blues room and play blues the rest of the night. And it was great because it was like we could stop thinking and turn our brains off and just play blues. And it was the perfect solution to a long day. And it also enabled us to be in the studio a lot longer than we normally would because we couldn't travel, we couldn't tour, we couldn't play in front of an audience. So it, it made sense. Well, let's just, uh, let's just go in the studio and, and record as much as we can. So we basically made two completely different records uh, and heavy load blues is coming out November 12th. And then the, the next record will come out sometime next year. And it's, uh, it's more akin to what people would expect, whereas Heavy Load Blues is the first real blues record we've ever made. And who are some of the, you, you have some covers and some originals yeah. on the album, and who are some of the artists that you cover? Uh, we covered uh, Elmore James tune. Uh, we covered a Howlin' Wolf tune. Uh, we covered uh, Bobby Blue Bland. Uh, we recovered it. We covered an old Ann Peebles tune uh, called Feel Like Breaking Up Somebody's Home, which is the only song on the record that we had previously pay, played. We, we play it live and we had a really good arrangement of it that we thought deserved to be on the record. But we wanted everything else to be stuff we had never done before. Uh, we also covered a Tom Waits song, which is it's called Make It Rain. But it's very much a blues song. We just kind of made it our own thing, but honored his version uh, as well. Um, we covered an old Junior Wells Buddy Guy song called Snatch It Back and Hold It. And then there's uh, a handful. It's, it's half original material and half covers, I think. And 
you, it, while you were in the studio, you used a lot of vintage instruments and amps. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and why you chose to use those particular vintage instruments and amps. Well, the blues records that, that I love were all made late 50s, 60s, early 70s maybe 1955 to 1975. I think those are the, my favorite sounding blues records. So I wanted it to sound like it could have been recorded during that window of time. Uh, we recorded with all analog tape and vintage microphones, uh, old Gibson guitars predominantly, although I played a, a couple of Dan Electro guitars, uh, mostly from the 50s and 60s. Uh, and the same with amplifiers, old Gibson amps and a Supro amp and an old Fender, all from the 50s and 60s and old RCA microphones and, and stuff like that. And I think that was a big part of the sound. But even more important was the approach that we took where we just set up really close together, everybody in the same room, um, every instrument bleeding into every microphone. So there's no real separation like in a modern recording. You know, the, the vocals in every channel, the drums are in every channel. Uh, and we had to keep the live performances because that's the way we chose to record it, which was great because I think that's the way blues should be recorded. So the vocals and everything are, are done live on the floor. To some extent, is it more fun to record when everyone's in there at the same time because it's more like a live performance? Well, we tend to do that as much as possible anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but for this, even more so, and we're right on top of each other. Uh, and no headphones, which was really fun. We, we haven't made a record like that where nobody wore headphones since the very first Government Mule record. Uh, it, it is fun to play that way because you feel like you're on stage. And that's kind of, that's what we're always going for is to get that vibe of us being on stage playing. And who produced the album? I produced it with our friend uh, John Paterno, who is a great engineer. And initially we had just hired him to be the engineer, but his role kind of grew and grew. So he wound up being a co-producer and, and did a, a fabulous job. And he had his hands full. He's making two records at once. Uh, and so it was crazy. You know, we would, we would bounce back and forth from one setup to the other. And he was technically supervising the in, entire thing. And it was, uh, it was a lot because the records do sound drastically different from each other. Now, what, were you trying to make a blues album that sounded like more like a traditional blues album? Or um, does some of the Government Mule end up in these songs regardless? Well, some of the Government Mule ended up in the songs from a performance mm -hmm. standpoint. From the sonic standpoint, it very much sounds like an old school record. And a lot of people say that, and then you listen to it and go, oh, maybe a little, but... I think with this record, it really does capture that vibe. And it's, it has everything to do with the way we recorded it and the way we approached everything. It's the opposite of modern recording. Well, speaking of sonic accidents, on Make It Rain, there was uh, one of the amps. Tell me about the, the story about the, uh, the thunder. And well, <laughs> It was an odd story. Uh, I wanted to, to record this song, Make It Rain. 
And I wanted to bring in, which I did, this old Fender Spring Reverb unit that I have that's uh, from the 60s. And I have two of them. And one of them is, is vintage. And one is a reissue that Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top gave me. And I, I brought both of them into the studio. And for this particular tune, I was like, I want, I want the vintage one on, on this record, on this recording. Uh, so we plugged into it and they're finicky, you know, like if you bump into them, they make a lot of noise. And, uh, so we made sure that it was very secure, but we didn't anticipate some sort of like radio frequencies coming through them while we were performing, while we were recording. So during the actual take that we loved, uh, and at uncanny times, I'd say, make it rain. And all of a sudden you'd hear, and we're like looking at each other and laughing. And of course we're filming the recording as well. So there's a, a video of us making this, this recording. It, it was such a great take that when we were done, I, I said to John Paterno, can we keep that take? And he was like, yeah, we have to keep that take. Where do you hear it? And so we go into the control room and listen to it. And it sounds like a record, but it sounds like we're playing during a thunderstorm. And it was just uncanny. Uh, but of course, after that, we moved the reverb unit into the control room where that wouldn't happen again. <laughs> but I'm glad that it went. If some things happen for a reason, you know. Well, in Heavy Load, that's that's one of the, uh, is that the title track? Um, yes. And you, that's, that's an original blues song. Yeah. And that's a little more, because I was listening to that, that's a little more almost the Delta blues sound, which is different than the electric blues sound. Yeah. Did you cover the gamut in this album with regard to the range of blues? Uh, we tried to cover as much of the gamut as far as uh, blues, types of blues that influence us. Right. You know, there, there's still a lot that we didn't get to and a lot we probably never could get to uh, in a million years. But we... You know, there's more traditional stuff. There's less traditional stuff. There's Chicago stuff. There's Delta stuff. Heavy Load is just myself and Danny Lewis, our, our keyboard player, who also plays guitar. The two of us playing uh, acoustic guitar and me singing live. And it uh, it sounds like an old acoustic recording uh, as well. I'm playing a 1929 uh, Gibson L1, which is uh, what Robert Johnson played. And Danny's playing a '60s uh, Gibson Hummingbird, and it's a uh, it's a beautifully captured recording. It sounds old, but uh, but it sounds rich and pure, and I, I'm really happy with the way it it turned out. Uh, you know, we kind of went for a different vibe on every song. We didn't want to uh, get too modern, but we also wanted to draw the line on a song by song basis. And so we tried to represent as many different versions of our influences in the blues world as possible. Well, I have to say it's, it's a beautiful album. It's coming out soon on Fantasy Records. And if you're a Government Mule fan, you're going to love it. If you're a blues fan, you're going to love it. Uh, it's just a, it's a really great listen. And, uh, I wish you the best of luck with the album, and I just wanted to thank you for stopping by and talking to us about it. My pleasure. Thank you. 
We hope you enjoyed this conversation with world-renowned Grammy-winning musician Warren Haynes. To learn more about what he's up to and to buy some of his music, which is always a good idea, be sure to visit warrenhaynes.com. And remember, you can visit diddytv.com for more exclusive, on-demand content. And download the official, free Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.